All rise. July 10th, 2009. Marshal, please bring in the jurors. A Manhattan courtroom. The jury has been out for three days. Three days of deliberations. Detailed deliberations. In order to convict, the jury's decision must be unanimous. Mr. Foreman, you have agreed upon a verdict? Yes, we have. Shira Shinlin has one of the best seats in the house. There are some cases that just stay with you no matter what happens in the rest of your career. So I would say this is one of those cases. In fact, she has the best seat in the house because she's the judge. The testimony was powerful. The trial has lasted six weeks, six long weeks of evidence. Evidence about that grand plan to scoop up the Azeri oil industry and make a lot of money. But the deal went bad. It got real ugly. And the defendant is accused of bribery, a very serious crime. He's put up a strong defense. He did have the best lawyers that money could buy. But the moment of truth has arrived. Jurors, how do you find the defendant with respect to count one? Conspiracy to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Well, you're going to have to wait for that verdict. But I'll give you this. The accused, the defendant, the guy facing the music, it ain't Victor Cogeny. This is The Pirate of Prague, an Apple original podcast. Produced by Blanchard House. I'm Joe Nocera. Chapter 8. Bottom of the Barrel. We'll come back to that Manhattan courtroom. But let's talk about our guy. Let's talk about Victor. Last time we saw him, he was being led off to a prison cell in the Bahamas. Fox Hill Prison. And it is not a nice place. So here's what happens. The feds get Victor taken into custody because they say he's a flight risk. (laughs) You're telling me. The guy has six passports, at least. The Bahamian judge says Victor seems to be able to conjure up passports at will. Now, the feds don't want him in a prison in the Bahamas. They want him in a prison in the good old U.S. of A., 
So they're busy in the Bahamas courts trying to get Victor extradited. But things slow down. I mean, really slow down. And all that time, Victor's in the slammer. And boy, this is one hell of a slammer. You don't want to be spend one night in that fucking place. Not a place I would want to spend more than a few minutes. Sounds tough, right? So the nights are long and the days are even longer. Every day, exactly the same. Avoiding the rats, dodging the maggots. And for light relief, a weekly trip to court. In handcuffs and red pants. Nice to know Victor hasn't lost his sense of style. And he always flashes a smile for the cameras. So Victor's putting a brave face on things. Meanwhile, the feds are trying every which way to get Victor on a plane with a one-way ticket to the U.S., where the feds want to put him on trial. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Maybe if Victor spends enough time in the hellhole that is Fox Hill Prison, it might just be enough to break him, convince him to give himself up, maybe cut a deal for a lighter sentence in a nice, cozy U.S. prison. I mean, by now, Victor was a bit of a mess. Oh, my God, he looked like he hadn't slept in days. Journalist Rob Urban covered Victor's case for Bloomberg. We're used to seeing him all dressed up and everything. He, he looked like he had had a rough go of it in jail. Six months becomes a year. And a year becomes 19 months. Can you imagine 19 months of rats and maggots? Must have seemed like a lifetime. But Victor doesn't break. In fact, he catches a break and wins an appeal. Not a final appeal, but an appeal that means that Victor is led out of his squalid prison cell. Down the dark, stinking corridors. And out into the bright, blinding, beautiful sunlight. Out to freedom. It's April 27th, 2007. Victor Cogeny is a free man. Well, kind of free. He's out on bail. The feds haven't quit yet. The fight to force him back to the U.S. is far from over. But they can't keep him locked up any longer. So Victor can go home. But something's changed. The man who walked out of those prison gates isn't the Victor Cogeny of old. He's a shadow of his former self. I was shocked. Mario Carey once sold Victor an island and two houses. The man he saw now was not that man. He had physically gone through a lot. And it showed, right? Long hair, ungroomed, fingernails. And he was just trying to get back on his feet. You've got people coming at you, lawsuits, the U.S. government. It seemed like a heavy burden. 
A heavy burden indeed. And if Victor thought he was going to slot right back into his old life, he was wrong. On the pristine golf courses and the tennis courts, word gets out. Victor's out. But the very rich folks of Lyford Key, they keep their distance. So Victor started to go in a bad way. You know, people started to shut him down a little bit. Relationships started to cease. You know, people didn't want to affiliate with him. So the neighbors may be keeping their distance. But the feds, they're still very interested in Victor Cogeny. And they're also very interested in everyone else involved in the oil deal. So back to that Manhattan courtroom where we started this episode. During the six weeks of the trial, the whole debacle is scrutinized, picked over, pulled apart. I mean, just think about it for a moment. It's kind of weird. The case hinges on a deal thousands of miles away. In the oil-soaked landscape of Azerbaijan, an oil company for sale, supposedly, an oil company pumping out billions of barrels of oil and billions of dollars of cash. Billions of dollars of cash flowing straight into the pockets of Victor and his investors. Or at least, that was the plan. It's all a world away from downtown Manhattan. But this is where it's ended up. And the alleged crime at the heart of those court proceedings, the crime the jury has spent three days deliberating over, bribery. Specifically, conspiring to bribe or influence Azari officials. Jurors, how do you find the defendant with respect to count one, conspiracy to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? Guilty. The man convicted? Well, now I'm going to tell you. Rick Burke the luxury handbags guy, one of Victor's very first investors. And Judge Shira Shinlin was in no doubt that the whole deal stank. It seemed like a very corrupt scheme. Azari officials, of course, maintain they never accepted any bribes. But the judge was in no doubt about Rick Burke's guilt in planning to try. The evidence show that he was well aware of the bribery, condoned it, and in that sense participated in it. And among that evidence? There are tapes of him talking to his own lawyers and saying, basically, could I be in trouble here? And you got hold of that tape, right, Peter? I did, Joe. And what's on that tape? It's a recording of Rick Burke openly discussing the possibility that Victor and his Azari company, Minaret, had paid bribes, and talking about how the investors could protect themselves. If they're bribing officials, and that comes out, uh, and let's say, you know, let's say a dinner one, one night, you know, uh, one of the guys at Minaret, you know, said, you know, we know we're going to get this deal, you know, we've taken care of this minister of finance, or this minister of this or that. What are you going to do with that information? This was a crucial piece of evidence, and it showed that Rick Burke was really worried about how Victor was operating. Rick Burke had some fantastic lawyers. 
But that wasn't enough. The facts were against him. The evidence was just too strong. You can spend millions on defense lawyers, but if you did the crime, you're going to do the time. The prosecution wanted to put Burke behind bars for a good stretch. Ten years. But Judge Shinlin, well, she didn't. To me, he was obviously not the inventor of this scheme, the lead defendant, the one who got the idea and brought in other people. So I balanced everything and rejected the government's request for 10 years. Instead, Burke was sentenced to a year and a day in prison. Because for Judge Shinlin, Rick Burke's role was far from black and white. I think he was a bit of a crook. I think he was a bit of a victim. I mean, he did lose eight million bucks. He was a victim of the hard sell of this guy, Victor Kozani, who's obviously very charming and able to convince people to invest with him. So Judge Shinlin was frustrated. Frustrated that it was Burke in her courtroom and not Victor. Frustrated that it was the handbags guy going down and not our guy the lesser culpable people in this scheme, like Mr. Burke, they go to jail where the mastermind is still living the high life. That's troubling. And Judge Shinlin thinks U.S. law enforcement didn't exactly cover themselves in glory. Remember, the Manhattan DA wanted to go after Victor for defrauding his investors. Now, that could have made it easier to force Victor back to the U.S. to stand trial. But no, the feds were determined to get Victor on a charge of bribery using that Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And that made it harder, much, much harder to get Victor back to the U.S. Some say the feds blew it. What do you think, Judge? I don't want to say 15 years later that they blew it. Maybe so, maybe not. Maybe they had their good reasons to proceed as they did. But... Had the federal government pressed a state law fraud claim as a basis for his extradition, maybe it would have gone through. But they relied on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Bahamas turned it down, and he was not brought to this country. But whether or not the feds blew it, it doesn't change the end result. Rick Burke was taking the fall, while Victor could enjoy his days under the bright sunlight of the Bahamas safe in the knowledge that nobody could get at him. And that, well, it doesn't sit well with the judge. I think that is a miscarriage of justice. And he's living high on the hog and not prosecuted and not in jail. That's terrible. So that was the fate of Rick Burke, sentenced to a year and a day in the pokey. Plus a million-dollar fine. We invited Rick Burke to discuss all of this in an interview with us. He declined. But what of all the others? Lee Cooperman wanted to clear his name. But that was going to be costly. My lawyers say if you fight the case and lose, it's triple damages. So, Peter, what happened to Lee? Lee and his Omega hedge fund, they settle by paying the feds a forfeiture of $500,000. Chump change for Lee Cooperman, I suppose. But uh, what what happened to the other investors? So Aaron Fleck, George Mitchell, all the other investors, none of them were prosecuted or fined. And they all denied any knowledge of attempted bribery. Wow. 
And what about those guys who struck deals with the feds? Did they get that slap on the wrist they were hoping for? Yeah, they, they kind of did, Joe. Remember Lee Cooperman's right-hand man, Clayton Lewis? I sure do. Well, he eventually pled guilty to conspiring to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. All right, okay. And so did Victor's right-hand man in Azerbaijan, Tom Farrell. He also pled guilty to violating the FCPA. And uh, what about Victor's lawyer in Zurich? Ah, yes, Hans Bodmer. He pled guilty to conspiracy to commit money laundering. But yeah, basically all three of them got their wrists slapped. No additional prison time, just time served, plus a fine. Okay, so back to Victor. It's 2007. He gets out of prison. What happens next? Well, I mean, here's a surprise. The guy who owned 15% of the Czech Stock Exchange by the age of 30, he takes an MBA class. Then he does something even more surprising. Victor announces he's running for the European Parliament on, get this, an anti-corruption ticket. I mean, seriously? Victor's also become a dad, again, twice, two more daughters. And he's also taken to Facebook, promoting bizarre alternative energy schemes. He tells a Bloomberg reporter, Physics is my life. And Victor finally wins his extradition battle with the feds. He cannot be extradited. It's taken years and a lot of lawyers. And as we all know, lawyers don't come cheap. So things are looking up. Or are they? Well, not exactly. Because Victor is under fire on a new front. Victor may have defeated the feds, so far at least. But now the checks are coming after him. Remember all those vouchers Victor bought there? Thousands upon thousands of vouchers that were supposed to give ordinary checks a stake in their new economy. Well, prosecutors didn't like what Victor had been up to, didn't like it at all. They felt he'd cheated his ordinary Czech investors. Cheated them big time. These were people that were really struggling. U.S. lawyer Teddy Baldwin was hired to represent the Czech investors in Victor's Harvard funds. These were people without money, and they had an opportunity to be given some money, only to have that money sort of blatantly stolen. And to do that is truly, I think, a despicable kind of act. Czech prosecutors had charged Victor with gross fraud. They accused him of pocketing hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars that should have gone to investors, not to Victor Kajani. There was just one snag, and it was a big one. Victor Kajani was unavailable to appear in court. Because guess what? Victor Kajani... It was in the Bahamas. And you got there before me on this one. It all comes down to our old friend, extradition. The Bahamas had no extradition agreement with the Czech Republic. You know, when Victor chose the Bahamas to settle down, it seems like he really thought this through. 
But that didn't stop the Czechs. They put him on trial anyway. In absentia. The verdict? Guilty. The court held that Victor had used shell companies in Cyprus to embezzle more than $1 billion belonging to hundreds of thousands of Czech investors. The sentence? 10 years. 10 years in the slammer. And how much did they order Victor to pay? $410 million. Teddy Baldwin was looking for ways to make Victor pay and make him pay in more ways than one. Sometimes you need more creative people, people that, you know, can think a little bit outside of the box. As Teddy describes it, former Navy SEALs were helping Teddy locate our guy in the Bahamas. And, well, they got creative. Proposed they just grab Victor and haul him back to the U.S. They have this idea that they can get him off the island. You know, we can get a boat, we can get him onto the boat, and then we'll just bring him back and, you know, drop him off where he can be brought to justice. Baldwin mulled this over. It certainly sounded creative, but, you know, maybe a little too creative. So it didn't happen. Victor was going precisely nowhere. He was staying put in the Bahamas for the long haul. But all those lawsuits are costly, very costly. And Victor's fortune, it dwindles. And then it dwindles some more until Victor's not a very rich man anymore. Remember that Bahamas mansion, the one with the humongous pool? Gone. The Peak House in Aspen? Gone. The jet with the private bedroom and the yacht? They're all gone. So Victor's no longer living the high life. Far from it. But then, fittingly, someone who remembers Victor long before the private jets, the yachts, and the big houses, that someone comes knocking. Remember Kendall, Victor's second wife? They met one night in a bar while Victor was at Harvard. And the two just loved walking. That was all before Victor made the big time. Things turned sour after they moved back to Prague. Kendall felt abandoned and alone while Victor was off empire building. She gave birth to Victor's first daughter. And then... It was all over. Kendall and their daughter were gone from Victor's life. Until... About four years ago, I actually did reach out to Victor, which was about the last thing I wanted to do. And I wrote him a note. You know, I've, I've raised our daughter. It's been difficult. Um, could you help me? And I think within an hour, he got back to me. And he said, well, of course. They spoke on the phone. And it was the first time I had heard his voice in 25 years, a long time. The years just melted away. 
he sounded exactly the same. And, and he said, I sounded exactly the same. And, and it was a very cordial conversation. But remember, Kendall needed something from Victor. I called him. I asked for help. I never wanted to. And Victor agreed to help, cooked up a plan to purchase a rental property for Kendall. It could bring in a few bucks. Nice plan. A bit of financial security. She'd raise their kid, remember? Well, it was a nice plan. Until... He sends me a picture of him on a hospital gurney. He tells me he's had a stroke. And that we'll have to kind of shelf the housing issue until he's better. Well, you can't blame somebody for having a stroke, right? Anyway, then there was no radio contact. There was nothing. So, Peter, a stroke. Yes. It was actually described in a letter written by Victor's doctor in the Bahamas. It said Victor had a stroke in 2018, and he ended up in the hospital for a month. Yeah, oh boy. That's, that sounds rough. And then, according to the letter, Victor developed a bunch of other medical problems, leaving him with severe pain, limited mobility, car sickness— and the doctor wrote that he also believed that Victor had an opioid dependence. Oh, man. And um, how come we have this letter, Peter? It sounds, you know, highly confidential. Not really. Victor's lawyers actually filed it in New York. It was to explain why Victor couldn't show up for that big lawsuit the Czech investors had filed against him. That $410 million lawsuit. Okay, so it seems Victor has had a stroke. But then what? Well, the man who appeared on a thousand billboards, the life and soul of the party, the self-promoter par excellence, he just vanishes, disappears, goes to ground. People try to raise Victor, reestablish contact. People like Petra Vendelova, one of Victor's chief lieutenants back in the Prague days. I made a short trip to Bahamas. I thought I could go and see him, but then he was not responsive to any emails or, or calls. And then there was Amir Farman Pharma. He'd known Victor for decades. He'd worked for him. They were old buddies who shared crazy nights at the speed club back at Harvard. June of 2021, I was in the Bahamas, and I was in touch with Victor. He wanted to see me, I wanted to see him, catch up, but it wasn't possible due to health reasons. The stroke, right? Wrong. This wasn't about the stroke. This was something different, very different, very strange. He had been poisoned, he thought. Yikes! And I said, well, who do you think poisoned you? Wouldn't have been the investors, would it? And he made a comment like, well, I wouldn't put it past those guys. So that was a possibility that one of the burnt investors may have actually poisoned him. Polonium style. Polonium? That's pretty far out. Now, of course, we tried every which way to get a hold of Victor for this show. We tried emails. We tried phone calls. We tried texts. We tried voicemails. Well, Peter did. The whole nine yards. And trust me when I tell you, Peter can be very, very persistent. But no reply. 
And that left us with only one move. Peter, you got yourself a nice little trip out of this, huh? Two trips, actually, Joe. (laughs) But I I promise you, Joe, I did not dip a single toe in those beautiful turquoise Bahamas waters. Yeah, sure, pal. Now, the two trips were exactly a year apart. We heard about the first trip at the top of episode one. Yeah, we tracked Victor down to a most unlikely place, a down-in-the-dumps condominium building on Paradise Island. A far cry from Lyford Key. And how did you know Victor was living there? Well, we really couldn't be sure, but the car parked outside was the very same one that was there back in 2015 when a local Bahamas cop served Victor with legal papers. So that's where we went looking for him. Okay, so let's hear some of that tape again. Hello? Hello, Victor? Hello? Victor? Hello? Hi, I'm a journalist and I'm trying to find one of your neighbors and wanted to see if you could help me find him. It's a fellow named Victor Kajani. He's got red hair, he's a white man, kind of round face and curly hair. Okay, you don't know anything about him. Okay, thank you very much, have a great day. I've never seen him actually. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know him. We're trying to find him. I'll show you the picture we have. I haven't seen him. The car that was identified back in 2015 as being driven by Victor is sitting right here in the parking lot. It's uh, in pretty bad shape. Have you seen him by any chance? You don't ever see him, but you hear him. Oh, really? You hear people every night. You do? Having parties. They have quite a bit of arguing, too. There's people there, I don't know, four or five nights a week. But I've never seen him. I wouldn't recognize him if he walked by here. I gotcha. Well, um, we were thinking we might have found Victor, where he lives. There's no doorbell to ring. There's no name on the door. There's no mailbox. This really does seem like somebody who does not want to be found. Hello? So that was the first trip. But no luck, right? Not a peep. We banged. We shouted. No sign of our guy. But, I mean, let's just ponder this for a moment, Peter. If this is where Victor is, that is some come down, isn't it? That's a major fall from grace. I mean, this guy had everything. The jet, the yacht, the beautiful houses, the cigars, the Chateau Petrus, for crying out loud. He had millions of dollars. Yes, and he now seems to be living in a rundown apartment block. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I got to ask, does Victor still have any money left? <laughs> it's a great question, and it's a question we've been asking everyone. This guy is a master of hiding assets. I mean, he told Bloomberg years ago, there's no pot of gold. But of course, plenty of people think he's still got millions stashed away. Well, you know, Peter... Every successful pirate has buried treasure somewhere. Anyway, you had no luck finding Victor the first time around. But then, a year later, you took another shot at it, right? We sure did, Joe. So we are back here in front of Victor's apartment, and a year later, things are just as they were. The swimming pool is still filled with green, scummy water. The hoses are still lying on the ground. There's still palm tree branches and coconuts all over the place. 
and there's the broken door lying in the corner. It's, it's a mess, exactly as it was a year ago. We're out front in the parking lot, and there's an old Mercedes. It's got a flat tire and in terrible condition. And well, this is really interesting. So in the back, there's a bunch of mail, a brochure for Christie's Real Estate. There's a, looks like a menu from a high-end restaurant. And there's a letter addressed to Victor Kojeny. And there's more here. So uh, right in front of the gear shift in the front of the car, there's a little stack of business cards. And guess whose name is on them? It's Victor Kojeny. So <laughs> this is a pretty strong indicator Victor is here, or he has been here. Victor, hello? Victor? Victor? Hello? We have been here for hours, staking out Victor's place, and there has been no sign of Victor. We're looking for a fellow that lives here named Victor Kojeny. Do you know him by any chance? I don't know him. White guy with red hair, he's kind of about 60. Okay. Thank you, sorry to bother you. I'm wondering how long we'll be in this car. <laughs> it's getting darker. Uh, some rain clouds coming in. And still no sign of Victor. Oh, boy. It's now pitch dark. Victor, where are you? It's day four. Uh, we're in the car again, hot car again. If Victor is inside, he is doing quite a job of laying low. No question about it. So the, the mystery continues. Victor? Victor? So, Peter, are you sure you got the right address? Well, it sure seemed to be the right neighborhood, Joe, because we were staying just around the corner, and we, we happened to go into one of the local restaurants. and Drinking on the job, Peter? No, just poking around, Joe. And we got speaking to one of the workers there, and he was happy to be interviewed. Here's the picture. Yeah, this is him. However, it's just a younger version of him, looks like. He's a chubby guy. He looked like he put on a lot more weight. And um, he never dressed like this. No question in your mind, this is... That's him. Yep. No questions asked. That's the guy. I've seen him about four to five times. Never gave his name. Always paid in cash. So he never gave you his name? He never gave me his name. But I know him by face. He was very particular on where he sat. He seemed like he didn't want to be visible at all. He seemed like he just wanted to be in a corner. He looked around a lot, you know, like he was always looking over his shoulder for something. He loved to drink a wine called Chateau Petrus, which is 
unbelievably expensive. It's like the most expensive wine in the world. Wow. <laughs> that particular wine, I don't think our restaurant would have that. What kind of wines would he get? I would say like champagnes like Moet. Um, he drank a lot of red wine as well. Um, how does health seem? Any, any health issues that you could tell? I mean, based on his stomach, he looked like he was well taken care of because he ate a lot. One other thing about him, um, I'm curious, did he smoke? I think he smokes cigars. He's a cigar smoker. That's Victor. So, Peter, sounds like you got close, but no cigar. <laughs> That's a good one, Joe. Full marks for effort, but it was a no-show from Victor. Mm, I'm not done yet, Joe. I'm not done yet. If, no, make that when we finally get to speak to Victor, there are so many things we want to ask him. Like, did you ever truly believe the Azeri Oil Company was really for sale? Peter, you spent all that quality time with Victor back in 99. What did he tell you? Well, Victor sure seemed to believe it was going to happen. That was going to be the big payday for him and his investors. In my interviews with him, Victor was mad about the failure to privatize Socar. As he saw it, the Azeri president had been bought, but he didn't stay bought. He told me, Aliyev double-crossed everybody. He sucked us in. We got fucked and hosed. Victor complained to me that he'd been scammed. Kathy Fleck, what do you say? I have no idea. I don't think it really mattered to Victor. I think one way or the other, he got money and he got to live this lavish lifestyle. Above all, what we really want to ask him about is his motivation. We'd love to understand what goes on in the mind of Victor Kajani. Victor's ex-wife, Kendall, thinks it's all very simple. I think it's just fun for him. I think it's just fun for him. Teddy Baldwin thinks it's less innocent, though he's not exactly a shrink. To not care that you hurt people, to lie so brazenly without any remorse, and you just move on as if nothing happened, I mean, those are all sociopathic traits. For Lee Cooperman, there's a simpler explanation. The moral of the story is you go to bed with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Kajani was a dog with fleas. Rob Urban has a different take. I think he had an inferiority complex. He wanted to be an important guy. Obviously, money was a part of it. He wanted to be wealthy. But I, I think it goes way beyond the money part. It was about respect, I think, more than anything. Yeah, so many see Victor's motivations as base, rapacious, money-grubbing. But his old friend Amir expresses something else. Something different. Admiration. I regard him as an old friend from Harvard who's uh, done amazing things, played a role in history. Growing up in communism in Czechoslovakia and, you know, jumping off a train to escape that. So I have great respect for his daring, risk-taking ability. So let's just think about this for a moment. This was some smart guy. A guy who started out with nothing, absolutely nothing, and became rich. Rich beyond most people's wildest dreams. But 
I mean, isn't there a fable in here somewhere? Petra? There was a fisherman who was living in a really poor cottage at the bank of a pond or a river. Yep. This sounds very much like a fable to me. A Czech fable, no less. And this fisherman, he managed to catch a goldfish. And we believe that if you catch a goldfish, you can have a wish which will come true if you release the fish. So he brought this this goldfish home and the fish said, well, please tell me what's your wish. And if you release me, I will... You know what? I love these old fables and all, but I'm going to cut this one short. The fisherman gets three wishes and gets a little too greedy. And the moral of the story, Petra? If you want too much, sometimes you end up uh, having nothing. So to the present day. Victor's a free man. But it's a strange kind of freedom. Being wanted on two continents. Wanted in America, wanted in Europe. He lives in a sun-kissed, gilded cage. Because let's face it, looks like he's in the Bahamas for keeps. The days of Jimmy Mosco building him million-dollar swimming pools seem to be well and truly over. I mean, what kind of life does he have now, the poor guy? I mean, he can't even leave this frigging place. What the hell kind of life does he live in? I feel sorry for the kid. I really do. I mean, there are other people in the Bahamas who go out in the sea. There's thousands of islands, and they sail around. I don't think he does that. I think he is confined there. Yep, he's stuck. And Victor knows it. He said as much to Bloomberg. And I quote, I feel a little like Napoleon sent to St. Helena. Napoleon, huh? He can't leave, right? I'm not sure if that's a happy ending. If Victor leaves the Bahamas, he knows he's at serious risk of arrest. In America, he'd face trial. In most of Europe, chances are he'd be going straight to prison. Simple as that. But I want to issue an invitation. Victor Cajuny, sit down with us. Peter would love another trip to the Bahamas, right, Peter? You betcha. We want to hear everything, Victor. Your side of the story, all of it. Warts and all, from start to finish. And we've got all the time in the world. And I think I might have just the right incentive. When we're done, How does that sound? Finanční genius. Miliony. Cash. Obchody. Kapitalismus. Investice. Miliardy. Bye.
You've been listening to The Pirate of Prague, an Apple original podcast produced by Blanchard House and hosted by me, Joe Nocera. The producer is Ben Crichton. The associate producer is Peter Elkind. The writers are Lawrence Grizel, Ben Crichton, and me, Joe Nocera. Music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmanel, and Toby Matamon. Sound design and engineering by Vulcan Kiseltog. Our managing producer is Amika Shortino Nolan. Our head of rights is Jim Peek. Legal counsel is Dion Gordon. Additional production by Britt Jensen. Production support by Hanifa Kebab. And special thanks to David Glovin and Yerji Slavachinsky. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The executive producer and head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. Goodbye. I gotta get out of here. I got shit to do. I gotta I gotta go back to my day job.